The practice of mapping key opinion leaders, or KOLs, has existed in the healthcare industry for many years. It's a practice that helps for pharmaceutical companies and medical technology companies to understand which physicians are truly driving leading thinking in their field, who are the ones that other doctors are looking to for advances in treatments and technologies. That practice, however, has been one that is focused almost exclusively on what that doctor has done. Today, though, just as in most other parts of life, in medicine, it's not just about what you've done. It's also about who you know. Hello and welcome to DataPoint, the podcast where we focus on all the ways that data and analytics are driving innovation in healthcare today. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and our guest today is Ryan Peeler, who is the Senior Director of Network Analytics at Vox Analytics, a company that does next-generation KOL mapping. Ryan is also a real expert in understanding the dynamics of social networks and the ways to measure them. If you enjoy stretching your brain like I do, I think you're really going to enjoy this. So Ryan Peeler from Vox Analytics, we are glad to have you with us. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So as you know, we are going to be talking a lot about patterns of physician influence and other things that are near and dear to my heart. But I wanted to see if you could give us a little bit of background uh, and talk a little bit about how you came to be the head of network analytics uh, at Vox Analytics. I'm guessing that you didn't pop right out of your undergraduate studies into that role. Uh, How did that happen? That's correct. I did not. So I, when I uh, finished my undergrad work, which is in biology and genetics, so I was kind of this uh, wet lab geek, um, I was trying to figure out what was a next step for me. And so I worked as a research coordinator in a lab at the University of Georgia. And that was a really formative experience for me because I got to talk to a lot of uh, people who were top in their field uh, and specifically plant sciences and plant genetics. And I had access to a lot of people who were uh, postdocs or finishing up PhDs. And uh, so I got to get some advice from them or kind of see what they were going through. And I also, uh, from the time I left high school to start college, I thought, oh, well, I, I think what I'll do is finish college and become a doctor. And so I was kind of weighing these two things that both had still a pretty long path ahead. And I threw, (laughs) the best way to describe it, I guess, would be inertia or lack of, I was comfortable and really enjoyed the work that I was doing. And uh, during that time, uh, when I was working in the lab, uh, there was someone who came to talk about this new program. Uh, at this graduate school, uh, and it was a combination program of, of a business program and a, a science uh, curriculum. So it was the Keck Graduate of In- Institute of Applied Life Sciences in uh, Claremont, California, and uh, it was such a gripping thought to me that I was like, okay, I'll see, I'll apply and see if I can get in and go be part of that program, and I did. And so it was again partially an MBA and partially a science master's, and so at the end of it. I was prepared to go into a world to explain science to business people and explain business to science people and those sorts of things. And uh, at that point in time, I met 
uh, someone who's associated with the graduate school who uh, is named Tony Page. And he was asking me what I was going to do when I graduated. I wasn't sure. Uh, and he was just putting together this idea to start this company that became Vox Analytics. And his mm. background is in strategic counterterrorism. And what he had done in a previous role in a previous life was look at the way uh, these different groups of people are connected and uh, do a link analysis on that. And uh, he was working on early versions of Al-Qaeda and those sorts of things. And so uh, it was a pretty compelling pitch to be able to say, well, if we can take this and apply it to communities of people who are working together to, and do a good thing with it, that would be pretty awesome. And so as an idea, that was compelling. So it was the first couple of years out of my graduate program. Uh, I was living that startup life where you're working really hard and not seeing any results for a little while and all mm -hmm. that stuff. And then um, basically after a couple of years of that, we started hitting uh, some really important value drivers for uh, pharma and biotech customers and really kind of took off from there. I'm curious you know, how much you think about the behavioral sciences and the psychology of network analysis. Does that, does that come into the work at all or uh, into your you know, more consultative business? Yeah, there's a few aspects uh, in which that's critically important. And um, part of it is understanding in, in, in a broader context what data means and what, uh, in the case of network analytics, the fact that two people are connected in this kind of roundabout way, uh, does it mean that if I put them in the same room and ask them questions uh, about activity in uh, an animal model of a molecule or something like that, that I'm going to get something that is uh, new and interesting out of them that I wasn't expecting uh, because they have kind of this roundabout shared information kind of thing. Um, that's one aspect of it. And another one is um, being able to target people who are interested in the same things in a way that gets you to very quickly to new depths of knowledge that uh, maybe you've never seen articulated before and doesn't necessarily appear in peer-reviewed journal publications or something like that. But you mm. uh, have a sense of experts in their field when they're talking about something. They have these opinions that often, more often than not, tend to be right, or at least you can see the play back and forth and kind of evaluate what it is you think is right uh, based on these two experts, either having a very collegial argument with each other or uh, violently agreeing with each other, those types of things. Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah, this is interesting. And we're going to get, we're going to dive more into it here. I, but for the benefit of background, the work that you're doing today is in large degree oriented around helping your clients to understand patterns of physician influence and how ideas and behaviors evolve through the course of a network. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, that's correct. So as you think about that and, and, you know, it can are contextualizing it for the listener, you know, that's work that's been done for a long time, you know, in the pharma industry and in the med tech industry 
How how have you seen that evolve? Or as you were looking back at the history, uh, you know, how do you how have you seen that evolve uh, with the work that you're doing? Sure. Yeah. When when we talk about this historically to uh, people, there are basically two ways that people used to do it, and uh, the first of which uh, is called bibliometrics, and that's where you look at the number of publications that someone has or the number of clinical trials they've participated in or the number of times something they've uh, been doing has been cited. And so in that case, it's just uh, an arithmetic counting of things to say, well, this person has 28 of this and five of this and 30 of this. Yep. And then you get this stack of people who you're comparing the value of those numbers to each other. Um, so that's that's one approach. The other uh, major approach that people had used historically is what's called sociometrics. And that has some benefits to it as well, where uh, you can say, oh, I know Dr. X has a vast knowledge and large patient pool of this type of cancer or something like mm -hmm. that. So why don't we go ask him who he thinks is important? And he might come back with four or five names and we can say, okay, number one on his list, let's go ask her what who she thinks is important, kind of spider web mm -hmm. out that way. Mm -hmm. um, there's some drawbacks to that, obviously, where you um, have some bias that's built into it and you end up um, kind of getting people who naturally have affinities for each other. And so you may not get the diversity of opinion there. And it also can be kind of expensive if you're paying honoraria and you're paying someone to do the surveys and those types sure. of things. So the sort of hybrid version of that was what had been in vogue uh, lately, which was um, identify a handful of different people based on the work that they're doing and then go out and survey them and ask about their network. And so uh, you end up with some sort of hybrid thing, which I, my opinion is that's better than either one of those two, but looking at it from a social network analytic perspective, which is what we do where we look at the, an entire community um, is superior in a lot of the ways because you can still come out with the same top 20, top 50 list in a community in terms of who's important mm -hmm. that pretty much would be universally agreed upon. But when you get further and further down that, that list or that stack, you can kind of understand um, how everyone compares to each other in a relative way based on network measures. And you can look at uh, what sub communities are showing up. And so sometimes we may have a client who's interested in, um, this topic or that to topic X or Y, and mm -hmm. they end up um, engaging a lot of people where you have a redundancy of connections and opinions in a certain area on a certain thing. And so you don't necessarily have an accurate view of what's going on, or you might miss some of the topics of interest uh, that you're trying to glean from this community that you're studying. Interesting. Okay. And actually, that's a good place for us to take a break. So we're going to stop for a second for a moment from uh, our sponsors, but we will be right back with Ryan Peeler. Today's show is brought to you by Blue Spire, a full-service digital marketing agency focused on complex and highly regulated industries of healthcare, senior living, and financial services. Rapid changes in the healthcare industry are causing consumers to seek out trusted advice, demand more transparency and access to information and content. With over 30 years of healthcare experience, Blue Spire knows how to help you reach, 
communicate with, and gain trust from these consumers. We help you engage with the right content at every touchpoint, from the first symptom search to appointment scheduling through care management. Visit us at bluespiremarketing.com to learn how we can help you deliver relevant, engaging content through ever-changing touchpoints that matter. All right, and we are back. I'm your host, Greg Matthews. We are here on the Datapoint podcast with Ryan Peeler, who is the head of network analytics at Vox Analytics. And uh, as we were going out to break, Ryan, we were talking a little bit about sort of the evolution uh, of the ways that the influence in these physician networks is measured. And I, I want to go, I want to continue that dialogue and go a little bit deeper because before the break, you were teeing up for us sort of the basics of the bibliometric method, uh, you know, counting, you know, number of publications or, uh, you know, number of clinical trials, et cetera. And there are certainly some nuances that go into that, you know, when you start factoring in a journal impact factor or, uh, you know, the role that they play in a clinical trial. But even that, it's still basically counting. And I really want to talk about the network analytics, which is the place where you have made your name and where your focus is. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the ways that you measure those physician networks? You know, how do you identify them? What's Where does the data come from? How do you weight those things? Can you walk us through how the network now plays into this study? Sure. Yeah, there are, there are a handful of... Uh, things that we've seen over the years where um, we ha we have these different methods to account for these that are built into the algorithms that we use. But uh, one of the things that we like to talk about are work circles, which is uh, repeat collaboration groups. And there are three key ways that we often find uh, these subgroups and networks working together. One of them may be that they're organized by some sort of formal effort. Uh, in that case, we're thinking about clinical trials, or maybe they got a grant together, or, uh, something like that. And so mm -hmm. uh, that's one. The other one is just the convenience of geography. So you may have a, a bunch of people at Harvard who have a lot of resources and uh, access to patients who are all working together uh, to do a study or, or something like that, or just happen to be down the hall from each other. So it's super easy for them to collaborate. Um, and then the third way is um, strictly by uh, topic interest or something like that, where you have some kind of, I guess, niche area, some subcategory of a disease area that uh, people might work together on. And so that type of bound by common niche interest um, kind of inspires people to work together. Mm. And then um, on top of that, we have... Uh, this layer of seeing where people fit within a network. And so there are people who, uh, if anyone who is familiar with, say, the breast cancer community may know, oh, these are the top 20 people. Everyone knows that. You get a little further and further down uh, the list and you kind of need to understand uh, that someone who may not publish that much or may not participate as a PI in clinical trials or those types of things um, still exerts possibly an outsized influence uh, on what's happening within a disease community. And that could be because they're a broker and that's someone who is the most in network, network nerd terms. It's basically like uh, someone who's the most frequent uh, path of shortest connections between people or groups. Mm. And so 
you may have someone that in bibliometric and sociometric methods would never show up. And in fact, we had a client recently who engaged with some folks who would fall into that kind of category mm -hmm. that were able to help them produce a tremendous amount of value on a molecule that they ended up selling to someone else based on uh, having a broader understanding of the utility and the uh, market potential for uh, this compound. So wow. those those types of things show up more than you would expect in networks. And there's other patterns that I think are pretty cool where um, in, in Italy, for example, because of the way uh, funding works there and uh, you can look at collaboration groups and for most disease communities, everyone in Italy is working together in these really collaborative groups. And that could be cultural or it could be um, part of the, the funding environment, that type of thing. Um, and then another thing that's interesting is sometimes when we do a global uh, view of a community for a, a customer, they may say, uh, give me the top person in Japan, for example. Mm -hmm. And we can come back and say, uh, so the highest ranked person in the globe who is based in Japan is this person. And they're like, great. And so they'll, they'll send that out to their, um, their group in Japan. And they'll look at it and say, this person's not very influential here. What's going on? Huh. And um, what you have to do is isolate the analysis to what it is you're looking at so or what it is you want to know about so what we would do in that case is say let's only pull in the japanese data points rerun the same type of analytics and then boom provide them that and they say of course these are all the the most important people thank you that type it is of it is amazing depending on what lens <coughs> you're looking through the answer can be so different that's a it's a really good example of that and i guess one of the things that i'm curious about is the different kinds of data that you're using to make these determinations, you know, are there certain, of course, without revealing anything proprietary, but are there certain data types that you will always work with? Are there some that, you know, you can sprinkle in as necessary and how do you make those determinations? Yeah. So for most of the work that we do, we start with a, a baseline of publicly available data and that would be, uh, all these things that we'd mentioned, it might be, um, and it, again, each one of these, it would depend on uh, the context or the, the lens that we're looking through. So at the beginning of a, a an engagement when we're scoping it, we would say, by default, these are the things we would include, but it would be um, peer-reviewed journal publications, clinical trials, guidelines, uh, where you get groups that are writing treatment guidelines for disease states and those types of things. Um, we have uh, these hospital lists that uh, show kind of what centers of excellence are involved in different areas. Uh, mm -hmm. So we pull that type of information. Um, and uh, then on top of that, uh, we would spec in a lot of the other things that clients are interested in. They may say, well, these 10 Congresses are of critical importance to us moving into this next phase of what we're doing or mm. as we're approaching launch, we want to be able to uh, have some influence at such and such conference, um, that type of thing. Uh, referral data so that you can 
see what shared patients exist uh, mm -hmm. between doctors. We'll have third-party agreements where we can layer in data uh, that show prescribing patterns. So you might get some idea of uh, someone might have a mid-sized practice, but a high volume uh, mm. of prescriptions for a certain type of drug. So uh, mm. being able to link someone who might be at a similar practice with a lower volume could be uh, business beneficial for, for a client, those types of things. So being able to um, incorporate all of those things, we have different models uh, that we use for the different contexts and data types that get pulled in. So I would imagine that as you're integrating these various different types of data, the level of complexity can be pretty high from a pure data perspective. Um, you know, you talked earlier about the fact that you were sort of a bridge between, uh, you know, the world of biology and the world of business. Uh, talk to me a little bit now about how you're helping to bridge the gap for people who may be really strong business experts uh, on uh, among your clients, but not necessarily data experts, what are the, some of the things that you're doing to help them uh, to be able to make more use of the data uh, that they have access to? Yeah, sure. So th this is, it feels like uh, an echo of something that I saw earlier in my career, which was the... Um, at the point in time where lots and lots of these model organism genomes started being sequenced, you had whole labs full of people that were working on um, trying to understand what these CATG sequences mean. Mm -hmm. And uh, so basically you had people who understood biology really well that hardly touched computers and were mostly doing stuff in labs to see if this band lit up on a gel or something like that. And then um, you had computer scientists who understood very well how these different Perl scripts work behind uh, extracting uh, potential sequences of interest and that type of thing. And so being able to um, understand back and forth between those two, um, what, what are things that can really unlock the promise of genomics, mm -hmm. that type of thing. So that was... Uh, I got to observe that from, from a pretty close distance uh, 20 years ago. And then to be able to now talk to someone who uh, maybe understands uh, a disease state really well and has a lot of connections in a community, being able to uh, take some very sophisticated data sets, if we just put down, uh, you know, five gigabytes worth of CSVs or Excel files in front of mm -hmm. someone and said, well, here you go. Everything you need to know is in there. <laughs> it seems unlikely that they'd be able to have the time and the bandwidth if they had the know-how to, to do it, to actually get something useful out of that. Right. And similarly, if, if I have provided the flat files to someone in uh, a pharma company and they had a, a great data analyst that went through and you know, sliced and diced everything and made a beautiful PowerPoint out of it at the end, are we sure that it captures the right insights and that sort of thing? And so right. uh, what we do is deploy all this data through uh, this web-based portal that um, is very visual. And so people can come to that with kind of their understanding and their questions and um, reduce kind of the, the questions that they have and the concepts that they have 
uh, into the insights that they want, and they can save these dashboards and uh, those types of things so that they might think, well, I, I want someone that works on these types of topics and someone that is in this particular geography and may be connected to these four or five people or uh, people similar to what I'm thinking about and maybe um, have some clinical trial experience or something like that. And in doing that, it it is possible for someone clever to take a stack of spreadsheets and get to that. But in terms of um, having someone with field knowledge be able to generate these insights for themselves and for their team, um, it's better to have more of a visual approach with oh, a yeah. robust and giant underlying data set. So you're saying that rather than, you know, forcing that person to either do a lot of manual labor or even to be able to write, you know, the right script, they're able to do that through a visual interface. That's that correct. Incredibly valuable. Well, man, this is a topic that I could spend all day on, Ryan. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> we are going to have to wrap it up today. We may have to come back for seconds at some point. But it's so exciting to hear about all the different ways um, that you've been focusing on understanding these networks, specifically networks of physicians. Thank you so much for being here. Yes, yeah, my pleasure. I hope I help someone. <laughs> exactly. I know you did. Um, thanks to you, the listener, for being here. Uh, we are excited uh, to be able to share this discussion with you. And don't forget to tune in two weeks from now for the next episode of DataPoint. Thanks so much for listening to the DataPoint podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at healthquant.health or send a direct message to at Chai Moose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.